chapter 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, and we want to look at verses 43 through 50. We're happy to see each other, which is a good thing. Matthew 12 and verses 43 through 50, Reformation versus Relationship is what I've titled the message here this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word now. I pray that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Help us to have ears to hear and uh, make the uh, appropriate application uh, in terms of the truth to our own hearts and lives. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are in Matthew, and the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. I really want to say Christ the Messianic King, uh, the one who comes fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, we have uh, really the resume of the King, which is according to Scripture, in the first ten chapters of Matthew. And now the, the issue becomes, what will the nation do with Christ? the Messiah, as he has presented himself. And we find in chapters 11 and 12 that they reject their king. Israel rejected her king. And that's the section we find ourselves in. The religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus. They lorded it over the people religiously, and they liked their power and their influence, their prestige over the people. Well, Jesus came on the scenes doing things like one of the first things he did is cleanse the temple. Well, you understand, if you are a religious leader in Israel, this is your turf as you see it. They ran the temple. Who does Jesus think he is coming in on their turf, throwing the money changers out of the temple, cleansing the temple? Who do you think you are doing this kind of stuff? Off to a bad start as far as the religious leaders. And then he went on to say things like, your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does he think he is making this kind of a statement? And then he further said things like, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who's in charge of the Sabbath? Who's the master of the Sabbath? That's a godlike claim. And so they flatly rejected the lordship claims of Jesus Christ. And really, the issue, when you boil it down, the issue for the religious leaders really swirls around this this issue of Christ's lordship. They had a problem with him being the Messiah, uh, the Lord, as prophesied in the Scriptures. Still, they had another problem, and that is the problem of his amazing miracles which were undeniable. What do you do with this? When Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, the Pharisees said that Jesus did it by the power of Beelzebub, which is a title for Satan. They said he did it by the ruler of demons. Well, Jesus called this sin blasphemy against the Spirit and said it was unforgivable. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And the miracles that Christ did were so clearly of God that to sin against the Spirit's testimony through them was to pass beyond the point of return. And a major reason this sin was so egregious is because Christ did in the power of the Spirit 
what he did in the power of the Spirit lined up perfectly with the Scriptures. You see, the Spirit's ministry and the Scriptures consistently go together. To sin against the Spirit is to sin against the truth of the Scriptures. So put this combination together. The prophetic truth of the Scriptures, the miracles of Christ fulfilling those Scriptures, and the Spirit's witness. Let me show you further what I mean. You understand the Pharisees knew the Scriptures well. They prided themselves on their knowledge of God's Word and taking it seriously. They knew very well that Isaiah 42 was a premier messianic passage. Isaiah 42, what we call one of the servant passages, one of the messianic passages in in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 42 begins this way. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, the special chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the Gentiles. The passage in Isaiah 42 develops a definite line of thought concerning the coming Messiah. And it builds to a high point in verses 7 through 9, where the centerpiece is the very glory of God, which God says he will not share with any other. He will not share his glory. This is unique to the God of the Bible. To the God of Israel, this glory. Well, in context, what is this glory? The answer is that it is prophetic truth fulfilled in the Messiah. And specifically, that he will open the eyes of the blind and deliver those in bondage. Which is exactly what Jesus did in relationship to the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him and delivered him from Satan's prison house. Notice what those verses say. Isaiah 42, 7 through 9. Again, he's talking prophetically about this special chosen one, the Messiah on whom the Spirit would uniquely rest. To open blind eyes. Jesus did that. To bring out prisoners from the prison, bound by Satan, demon possession. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the most sacred name for God. I am the Lord. Who does this? I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold. The former things have come to pass. That which has been prophesied by the God of Israel has come to pass. And new things I declare before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. Again, the context of Isaiah 42 is a messianic prophecy concerning God's elect special servant, the Messiah. Who would be uniquely empowered by the Spirit, who would open the eyes of the blind and deliver those in bondage. All of this was new prophetic truth 
through Isaiah that God would bring to pass in the person of the Messiah. This is God's doing. This is God's glory alone. When Christ did these things, it was God's glory on display through him, the Messiah. So when Jesus fulfilled this, it should have been crystal clear. It fulfilled Isaiah 42 to the letter. This was God's unique glory being displayed through Jesus. It was the perfect fulfillment of Scripture. It was explicitly clear. It was undeniable. And to blaspheme it was unforgivable. Jesus explained that the only way demons can be cast out is by exhibiting a superior power, which in effect was proof that Jesus did it by the Spirit of God. He then made the pronouncement that to sin against the Spirit with this level of blasphemy was unforgivable. And he further explained that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These blasphemers revealed the wickedness of their hearts. And then adding insult to the blasphemy of the Spirit, the Pharisees had the audacity to demand yet another sign that would be more convincing to them, which would serve as proof to them that Jesus was really operating by the power of God and not by the power of Satan as they charged. Jesus responded by telling them that it was evil to seek a further sign and took them right back to Scripture. With the examples of Jonah and Solomon, neither Jonah nor Solomon did any miracles, sign miracles. Jonah simply preached, and Solomon shared his God-given wisdom. And this is how God works. He works powerfully through his word, through his spirit. His word and his spirit work together, and that's a powerful testimony. And thus, the ministry of Jesus the Messiah was superior to what God gave Jonah and Solomon in the sense that the prophecies concerning the Messiah were more glorious in fulfillment than either of their ministries. Well, Jesus then went on to give a parable, as we are studying this morning, or an analogy that is descriptive of where the nation of Israel was at as seen in the rejection of their Messiah, and explained what is really needed is not religious or self-reformation, but rather relationship with him. Relationship with Jesus the Messiah is the all-important issue. Let's pick it up, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. <clears throat> Again, Jesus is speaking in the form of a parable to illustrate the spiritual condition of Israel. Now, when he talks about the spirit uh, as he leaves a person, he goes through dry places. Uh, the idea of dry places is based on the idea that the dry, desert, arid areas were the haunt of demons. And we see this kind of recurring theme in the scriptures. For example, when Christ was tempted, he was led out where? Well, into the wilderness, that barren, dry area to be tempted by the devil. 
Matthew chapter 4. The demon in this condition desires embodiment by which to find rest. It's like they find some kind of comfort or or rest in, in dwelling in a body. Desires to find rest through possessing someone, but finds none. It does seem that demons crave embodiment. They want a host, so to speak. In Matthew 8, when Jesus was about to cast the demons out of the demoniacs, the demons begged Jesus to allow them to go into a herd of swine. They want to possess something, preferably a human, and they largely do their work through people whom they possess. And it's interesting, Satan is a deceiver, a master deceiver. I don't think you necessarily, you know, we think of demon-possessed people just kind of out of control. Crazy. Not always. Satan is also transformed into an angel of light. He does a lot of his most deceptive and effective work by coming off like a, a very righteous person. For example, the Bible talks about the doctrines of demons, which will be prevalent in the last days of the church age, and I am convinced we are there. These doctrines of demons are inspired by demons, but propagated through false teachers. Lots of times in pulpits, just like I'm standing here this morning. I trust I'm not one of them. <laughs> but that's how the devil works. Notice what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. These doctrines come forth from recognized teachers. Verse 44. Then he says, uh, the demon, I will return to my house from which I came, and when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. In this parable, the man is the house for the demon, which represents Israel. After the demon left, finding no one else to possess, he then returns to the house and finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Now that sounds really good. It represents reformation brought about in Israel, perhaps after the Babylonian exile, or in conjunction with the ministry of John the Baptist and the early ministry of Christ. You see, prior to the Babylonian captivity, Israel was involved in very gross idolatry of the worst sort. However, after the Babylonian captivity, Israel has never again fallen into overt, formal idolatry. Still have idolatrous hearts. But as far as outward, overt uh, idolatry... Ever since the time of the Babylonian exile, Israel has not been there. In that sense, their house has been reformed, being empty, swept, and put in order. John MacArthur says, the Pharisees were classic moralists. No other Jews, and certainly no Gentiles, were committed to such rigid standards of religion, morality, ethics, and daily living. They live by a complex and demanding code a system of laws that regulated virtually every aspect of life. Empty, swept, put in order. After the time of the Babylonian exile, that defined the nation. Also, when John the Baptist came on the scene preaching the need to repent, 
Jesus said their initial response was seemingly very positive. What we might call one of reformation. In John chapter 5, verse 35, Jesus says of John the Baptist, he was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. You need to get right. And there was, out, there was outward stir and outward reformation of some degree. But the point here is mere reformation is not enough. They say that nature abhors a vacuum. Something is going to move into that empty space. And the great issue is this. Will it be the devil or will it be God? William MacDonald says, over 2,000 years ago, the Savior sought admittance to an empty house. He was the rightful occupant, the master of the house, but the people steadfastly refused to let him in. Though they no longer worshipped idols, they would not worship the true God either. This was the spiritual condition of Israel, as Jesus goes on to apply it to Israel. Again, MacDonald says, The empty house speaks of a spiritual vacuum, a dangerous condition, as the sequel shows. Reformation is not enough. There must be the positive acceptance of the Savior. By way of application, there are many people in the church today who are moralists or religionists, and their lives outwardly indicate some measure of reform. But in truth, they're not saved. J. Vernon McGee said, the hardest people in the world are the unsaved church members because they think they're all right. They have undergone self-reformation, empty, swept, and in order. Look at them and say, they're, they're good people. He says the devil owns them and they don't recognize this fact. Reformation means death and destruction. Regeneration means life and liberty. And the parable continues, and really uh, discerning and understanding the parable really hinges on verse 45. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be also with this wicked generation." By the way, this idea of wicked generation ties back to what he has already said in verse 39, where an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So we have this this whole thing kind of tied together related to where they have come to blaspheming uh, the Spirit uh, and blaspheming uh, Christ in terms of uh, the miracles that he's doing by the power of the Spirit. Here is the key to understanding Christ's point. Namely, mere reformation without relationship with God in the end results in a worse condition. Verse 45 here indicates that there are degrees of wickedness among demons. Did you catch that? Seven other spirits more wicked. Some are more wicked than others. The worst of the worst after the Genesis flood were confined to chains of darkness in a special holding place called in the Greek Tartarus to await final judgment as we find in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. But in this parable, 
the demon finding his former house, that is the, the body of the man that he earlier had exited, He finds the body of this person reformed and unoccupied. He then takes with him seven other more wicked spirits, and together they all possess the man, making his last state worse than the first, which is the main point. And then Jesus makes this application. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Yes, Judaism under the leadership of the Pharisees, which emerged out of the Babylonian captivity, had forsaken formalized idolatry. In that sense, the house of Israel was swept and clean. Again, MacArthur says, but those man-made standards, purportedly based on God's word, had led them further and further from God. They were so self-sufficient and self-righteous that when God himself came among them in human form, they rejected, vilified, and finally crucified him. Demonic activity and idolatry are very closely linked in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, Paul explains that idols within themselves are nothing. However, demons associated with idolatry are very real. Even though Israel, ever since the time of the Babylonian captivity, has never fallen back into formalized idolatry, Yet the very worst form of idolatry is yet to be for them. And that is when the apostate nation of Israel, which is where they are right now, will worship the Antichrist. At some point, Israel will look to the Antichrist as their savior and will enter into a seven-year covenant with him as so stated in Daniel 9.27. This is elsewhere stated to be a covenant with death in Isaiah 28. This will be the worst time in Israel's history, called in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. And yet in that context, God will purge apostasy from the nation. And one-third of the Jews will come to repentance and saving faith in Jesus as their Messiah, as seen in Zechariah 13, 8, and 9. So note the full picture here in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. What we have in Matthew 12, 43 through 45, is a summary of Israel's history in parabolic form regarding her problem with idolatry. They had a demonic problem with idolatry in the Old Testament. Then they were broken of this in the Babylonian captivity, which left their house swept and clean, but at the same time empty. The Messiah came seeking to fill their house, but they refused him. And consequently, the worst form of demonic idolatry is yet to come for the nation of Israel, which will be realized under Antichrist. Again, MacArthur says, whether in the broad range of history or in individual life, the same principle applies. Outer Reformation without inner transformation, brings susceptibility to even worse evil than that from which one turned away. What Israel failed to realize is that religious reformation is not enough. We need God to fill our lives. We need relationship with God, not merely religious or moral reformation. And this is what Jesus goes on to show.
Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Indeed, God has made us for himself. And to merely apply self-reformation is not sufficient. We need a life-changing relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Instead of rules being our Lord, we need the Lord himself to be our Lord. Ultimately, it's not about reformation, but rather about regeneration, about relationship. This is the whole issue. It's about a life-changing relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe says, it's not enough to clean the house. Not enough to clean the house. We must also invite in the right tenant. The Pharisees were proud of their clean houses, but their hearts were empty. Mere religion or reformation will not save. There must be regeneration, the receiving of Christ into the heart. Amen. Verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Now, the cross-reference to this text in Matthew 12, 46 through 50 are found in Mark 3, 31 through 35 and also Luke 8, 19 through 21. And the setting is found in Mark 3, 21. And what do we find there? Concerning the family at this time showing up to talk to Jesus. Mark 3, 21 says... But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. <laughs> Doesn't sound like they were really that enthused about his ministry at this point. During Christ's ministry, you understand his half-brothers did not yet believe in him. And perhaps his mother was also still a little confused about certain things. Uh, perhaps swayed by the other brothers. Who knows, she was here with them. Whatever the exact nuances it involved, it would seem that they were attempting what we might call a family intervention. A family intervention. You understand Jesus was the oldest child in the family, having been born first of his mother while she was still a virgin. Joseph is not mentioned, probably because he was already dead. After Jesus was left behind at the temple at the age of 12, we, we, after that event, we never hear about Joseph again. So it is assumed that he probably died sometime after that event and prior to Jesus entering into his public earthly ministry at the age of 30. ESV Study Bible says, Jesus' family may have been trying to bring him to his senses. As the eldest son, Jesus would have been responsible for the care of the family after Joseph's death. That would be how it would work. The father dies, now the oldest son would kind of be the, the patriarch of, of the family. And now he's kind of gone off. We need to kind of get him back corralled in here. He's kind of really getting carried away. So they were seeking to do a family intervention. Because it seemed, you know, you know it seemed kind of crazy that Jesus would be in such tension with the most esteemed of the religious leaders in the Holy Land. I mean, who does this? Nobody in their right mind takes on the whole religious establishment, the, the holiest of the holy spiritual leaders in the whole land. Who does that? This is getting kind of crazy. It seemed that one would have to be out of his mind to do this. And especially the oldest child, who was to be the leader of the family. This called for a family intervention. 
throw in the masses following Jesus out of fascination for his miracles, his ceaseless activity, his lordship claims, and the family was concerned about where this was going. People were talking to them. You know, those with some influence said, you know, we got a problem here. But Jesus took advantage of this occasion to instruct the people that the thing that really matters is not ultimately physical family relationships, but rather spiritual family relationships, a spiritual family relationship with him. Participation in the Messianic kingdom is not merely based upon a claim to Abraham's family, as so many Jews assumed, but is contingent upon a spiritual relationship to Christ. John Phillips says this, In the gospel record of the ministry of Jesus, there are only two occasions prior to the crucifixion. When Mary appears, here and in John 2, both times she seeks to have a say in his affairs, and both times she is reproved by him. (laughs) It's kind of humorous, a little bit. So much for the errant theology that says Jesus will listen to his mother, and therefore the attempt to seek Mary as a mediator. The Bible is very clear. Mary is not a mediator. And she cannot help you at the hour of your death. If you're not calling on Jesus, forget it. Mary's never coming to help you. There's only one mediator. The Bible's very clear. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. Who is that mediator? The one mediator. The man Christ Jesus. He's the go-between. John Phillips again says, Such passages as these in Matthew 12 and John 2 anticipate and repudiate Roman Catholic dogmas that exalt Mary to the status of deity, teach the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, and make Mary redemptrix with Jesus. I would remind us that while Mary was honored and blessed uniquely, she was not sinless. In Luke 7, 46 and 47, Mary said, quote, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Thus, Mary recognized that she too needed a Savior, and only sinners need a Savior. Hence, by Mary's own confession, it is clear that she was a sinner. Well, in Matthew 13, uh, 55 and 56, four half-brothers of Jesus are named, namely James, Joseph, Simeon and Judas, also known as Jude. He also had half-sisters who are mentioned, but they are not named. After the resurrection, Jesus' brothers came to believe in him, with James becoming a key leader in the Jerusalem church, also wrote the the book of James. His half-brother Jude went on to write the little letter that we call Jude in the New Testament. And after the resurrection, we find Mary and her brothers... Mary and Jesus' half-brothers assembled with the believers in the upper room as recorded in Acts chapter 1. Verse 47, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. This verse is not in the oldest manuscripts, but it is noteworthy uh, that there is no indication that Christ's family did ever manage to talk with him on this occasion. They wanted to. But Jesus, in effect, put them in their place. You see, they sought to, it seems, straighten him out. But as Lord, he showed his lordship authority over them. They were still thinking in physical terms as the earthly brother who had been around the home for 30 years, 
Jesus was now functioning as Messiah Lord, and they needed to realize this. And, of course, eventually they did. Verse 48. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? <laughs> you know, on the face of it, this question uh, in isolation comes off as either insulting or insane. Right? Who is my mother? I mean, it's like he's disowning them. Who is my mother? My brothers. I'm not acknowledging them. Now, obviously, Jesus did know who his physical mother was and who his half-brothers were. The question is rhetorical, as Jesus is wanting to make a spiritual point, a spiritual application. So he's putting the emphasis on spiritual family, not on physical family at this point. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't care about his physical family. His last instructions from the cross involved the ongoing care for his mother. And through his gracious intervention, his brothers also came to believe in him, as already noted. Again, Jesus is using this occasion to emphasize that the most important issue is having a spiritual relationship with him and not a physical one. And also emphasizing his lordship over his physical family. They were not controlling the situation. Verse 49. And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. In the surrounding context, Jesus talks about who is his mother, his brother, and his sisters. But nothing is said about father. Perhaps the reason for this is because spiritually speaking, reference to father is to be reserved for the heavenly father alone. He's talking in spiritual terms, you understand. And spiritually speaking, I don't know what you do with this if you are, for example, a Roman Catholic. Romans 23, 9, do not call anyone on earth your father. Spiritually. One is your father. He who is in heaven. And this kind of becomes a challenge. How serious do I take Jesus and what he says? Well, if you take the Bible seriously, uh, you will only want to use the spiritual title father for father God who is in heaven. If you take his word seriously, this title is to be reserved for Father God alone. You really don't want to call a, a mere man Holy Father. Uh, you, you really, really, really do not want to go there. In a physical sense, the Bible does speak of men as being earthly fathers, of which I am one. And Paul did use it in the sense of a, a small f father in speaking of his relationship to people he had led to the Lord or in the sense of forefathers. However, in the authoritative sense of spiritual father, only God is to be referenced in this manner. Note those who are here called disciples. He stretched his hand toward his disciples, meaning believing, learning followers of Christ. It is these who are disciples who are said to be a part of Christ's spiritual family. We're not saved by following, but true believers are true followers of Christ. The following is the fruit of true faith. John chapter 10, Jesus says, but you do not believe. There's the issue. Are you a believer or not? And he says, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And here's what de describes the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They respond in faith. 
and I know them and they follow me. That's the result. And I give them eternal life. These are the ones who have eternal life. Those who respond in faith and they follow him as the shepherd. They're the sheep. He's the shepherd. Now, easy believism says you can be a true believer without being a true follower of Christ. But I want you to know Jesus never said that. To have that kind of theology, you really have to read verses on believe in isolation, ignoring the greater context of the scriptures. We are saved by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. We're saved by faith alone. But it must be the right kind of faith. And a true saving faith is a heart-changing, life-changing kind of faith that proceeds to follow Christ. Not perfectly, but certainly. If you want to make the case and say, well, I'm a believer, but I'm not a follower, you're not a true believer. As the Reformer said, we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies does not remain alone. John Calvin said this, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. And to show you all the more that it is only true disciples, that is true followers, who are of Christ's spiritual family, Jesus went on to clarify the issue in verse 50. Very strong statement. Note this connection. There's a direct parallel here between disciples in verse 49 and who does the will of my Father in verse 50. It's a direct parallel. A disciple is one who does the will of the Father, and therefore it is disciples who are truly part of Christ's spiritual family. This is consistent with and builds on the emphasis seen at the climax of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Again, Scripture builds on Scripture, and we noted this earlier where Christ said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they say the right thing, but not everyone who says it, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, who's going? Those who do the will of the Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons, done many wonders in your name, doing all kinds of things in Jesus' name. They were active, all right. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I was never your Lord. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus made the issue his lordship. Those that truly know him as Lord seek to do the will of the Father and thereby indicate they really do know him as Lord. Uh, you know, John wrote the Gospel of John, but he also wrote the book of 1 John. John is the gospel of belief. You have to believe. 1 John kind of tests what kind of faith do we have, giving evidences of true faith. And in 1 John 2, 3, he says, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In contrast to true faith which follows are mere talkers. They say, Lord, Lord, but it doesn't affect their practice because it's not real in their hearts. Matthew chapter 12 signals a major transition in the ministry of Christ. Whereas earlier the emphasis had been on reaching out to the entire country as a whole, now the emphasis is more on individuals. Whosoever will can come. 
Whereas earlier the emphasis was on presenting the kingdom, on the condition of repentance, now the emphasis will become the kingdom is being delayed and Christ is going to the cross. Of course, in the sovereign plan of God, he knew where it was going all along. But he allowed it to unfold as it did for his sovereign purposes. But note the emphasis here in Matthew 12, 50 on whoever, whoever does the will of my Father. That's a universal appeal. John chapter 1, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. By and large, that's true. But as many individuals as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Whosoever will can come and be a part of Christ's family. But one does have to receive him by believing in his name, which is to say his person. And who is he? He is Lord and Savior. MacArthur says, the whoever indicates the universality of the invitation. No one who believes is excluded. And on the other hand, not one who does not believe will be included. Doing the will of the Father starts with believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. John chapter 6 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. They're all fixated with works. And Jesus, in effect, told them that God, what God wants them to do is believe in Him. They wanted to know about works, and Jesus said, believe. This is the work, so to speak, that God wants them to do. This is in the same vein as the Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? And the response came back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. This is what you must do. This is the quote-unquote work of God. And of course, ultimately, it is God who works to even bring us to that point. But we do have to respond. The will of the Father, first and foremost, is that people believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once this takes place, a progressive sanctification begins to work its way out in the life to where one's whole life is colored in a whole new way. You know, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. All things have passed away. All the old relationships, sin, with sin and the, the world and the devil, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Again, the issue of doing the will of the Father is not one of perfection, but it is one of direction. You know, we got these interesting verses in John 5. It's interesting how they're sprinkled all over the gospel of belief, the gospel of John John 5, 28, 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Realize this is in the context of the gospel of belief. Now, normally we break the whole of humanity into the two categories of believers and unbelievers. And that is right. But here Jesus broke it into two categories of those who do good and those who do evil. And the point is, true faith changes the entire trajectory of a person's life. So much so that true believers are generally characterized as those who do good. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew twelve fifty, does the will of my Father. Just to be clear, 
We're not saved by doing good or by good works of any kind, for that would contradict grace. However, if we are saved, the identifying fruit or the evidence in the believer's life will be that we desire to do the will of the Father. Now, our study this morning presents a great contrast. On the one hand, we have mere empty reformation. Legalism. Got all these rules. Looks like a nice, clean life. On the other hand, we have a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The results in us being a member of his spiritual family. The first represents a work salvation that cannot save. The second represents true saving faith. You see, the Jews were big on reformation. There was religious reformation, moral reformation, self-reformation, legalistic reformation, social reformation. In one sense, the whole of Judaism had become about Mere reformation. (laughs) And they were serious about it. Jesus mentioned this to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Colossians talks about things that indeed, quote, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. By way of application, there are lots of Reformation programs today. We have seven steps, 12 steps. We have meditation. We have all manner of self-help disciplinary plans and programs. And many of these, in fact, may bring a measure of positive change in the person's physical life. After all, you can, to a point, train the flesh to behave outwardly. But what you can't do is internally change a person spiritually. Only God can do this. Only the gospel can do that. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul at great length shows that the pagan, the moralist, and the religionist are all equally under condemnation. Now, the moralist might think he has a leg up on the pagan. I'm not as bad as the pagan. Look at my moral life. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Both the moralist and the pagan are under condemnation. The religionist might think that he has a leg up on the pagan and the moralist. After all, he's got religion. But no, 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 Paul says, no, he too is equally under condemnation. Condemnation. Doesn't matter whether you're a pagan, a raw pagan, a moralist, or a religionist. All equally under condemnation. And he builds to this climactic point in Romans chapter 3, where he talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. Why? We're all in the same boat. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The pagan, the moralist, the religious, all are in the same category. All are sinners, short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you do to try to change your life. You can't do it. Self-reformation always comes short. You know, at funerals, they often say, he was a good person. 
Oh, I say, well, yeah, I like this. Ask, how do you reconcile that with Isaiah 64, 6? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. How good? How good? According to whose standard? Who, who are you measuring this goodness by? Was he good? Measuring right up to God's glory? No, we, we all come far short. Our works can never save us in part or in whole. And all efforts at mere reformation can never save us in part or in whole. I'm glad you quit drinking. It won't get you to heaven. I'm glad you're no longer stealing, pilfering from the boss. Won't get you to heaven. I'm glad for that little change in your life, though. Don't get me wrong. Just won't save you. We need Jesus. We need a life-changing faith relationship with Jesus. This is ultimately the only thing that will really change us spiritually for time and eternity. We need a new nature. And that only happens through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. On the night of April 14th, 15th, 1912, the Titanic set sail from Southampton, England for New York. The manufacturers of the boat said it was unsinkable. It was huge. They called it a floating city, the Titanic. At the time, it was the world's largest man-made movable object. She set sail that fateful night with more than 2,300 passengers aboard. Several passengers wrote in their diaries that they overheard people claim that even God couldn't sink this ship. You just never want to take God on like that. So with human ego as big as the ship, the Titanic launched... It's maiden voyage, and in keeping with human ego, the owners wanted to set a record pace in crossing the Atlantic. So caution was thrown to the wind as the ship sped through the icy waters. But then at 11.40 p.m., the ship hit an iceberg, and two hours and 40 minutes later, the Titanic sank into a watery grave. Well, let's talk about some application. With the ship sinking... What should the passengers have done? Rearrange the furniture in a way that would make them feel better about their situation? Yeah, that's much better. I like that arrangement. That looks good. <clears throat> no, such reformation would change nothing ultimately. No, what was needed was to abandon the entire ship for a whole new relationship with a lifeboat. Yeah, only getting on the lifeboat could they be saved? And so it is with Jesus. Reformation never changes anyone's destiny. It merely rearranges the furniture in your life, so to speak. Okay, nice furniture arrangement. But what is needed is true faith in Jesus, who alone is the Savior, the lifeboat, if you will. And when we come to Him in true repentance and faith, our lives are changed, our eternity our eternal destiny is forever altered. So you want to change your life. And I've had people come with me, to me with that. Uh, I remember I had a couple come and, and they said, we're, we're, they were living together, living in sin. And, and they said, we want you to help us to get along. And so I said, well, okay. I said, what about Jesus? I said, we don't want Jesus. We just want a little self-reformation that will help us live a better quality of life. And I said, well, I'm sorry. The only answer I have is Jesus. Yeah, there's love, joy, and peace found in Jesus. And 
you know, we have the help of the Spirit and empower us. But I can't help you if you don't want Jesus. You want to change your life? The real issue is this. Has Jesus changed you from the inside out? Only a saving faith in Christ as Lord and Savior can do that. You know, we sing an old song written in 1878 titled, Are You Washed in the Blood? And the first line of that song says, Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? And not taking anything away from that line at all. I want to add this one. Have you been to Jesus for the changing power? That's the ultimate issue. In the end, only the blood of Jesus can cleanse, and only the living Lord can truly change a person spiritually from the inside out. It's called being born again. We know John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But let's not forget verse 13, who were born, born again, born of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can't will yourself into that condition. This is a a spiritual operation of God. You believe you're born of God supernaturally. He brings about a new birth. But note the double emphasis in verse 13, not on the will of man, not on the will of the flesh. Well, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing slash changing power? He invites us to come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. We must cease from all self-effort and come to Jesus and find rest in him. Only this will put you into God's eternal spiritual family. It's not about personal reformation. It's all about personal relationship with God through saving faith in Jesus Christ that forever changes your life. Jesus alone, spiritually speaking, Nothing against, you know, changing some habits and this and that. But spiritually speaking, Jesus alone is in the life-changing business. Have you been to Jesus for the life-changing power? Let's stand and have our closing song.